Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. Giuseppe Cardinal Sarto, the next pope, had to be persuaded to accept the papacy. And uh, yes, apparently, I mean, he, he was very modest and unassuming, you know, and uh, he, uh, had to, he, had to, he went into a little retreat and they prayed for him and eventually said, okay, I'll take it. Now, he was in full agreement with Pius IX's assessment that radical secularism amounted to apostasy and that it was ruinous to society. He took the name Pius X, and his motto was, Instaurare omnia in Christo, to restore all things in Christ. In keeping with that conviction, he wasn't thinking about the world or justice. He first focused his attention on the church itself. He uh, updated canon law, he enriched church music, and he instituted early and frequent communion. Now, my, I tell you, now, my father, Charles Michael Free, served daily Mass for Father Craig at St. John the Baptist Parish in Haycock, Pennsylvania. Served daily Mass. He was not allowed to receive First Holy Communion until he was about 14 years old, and then he could receive communion once a month. That's my father. Not my grandfather, my great-grandfather. My father. Now, of course, he was born in 1888, so. But that's what, that's what the rules were. And uh, Pius X knew that that had to change. Now, Although he kept up this battle against modernism, he carried forward this whole theme of social justice, particularly as the promoter, the ardent promoter of peace. He died just 18 days after the outbreak of World War I. I think it was August 20th, 18 days after the war started. It was thought that he'd had a heart attack, and I think that's what the, some of the medical people had said, but those who knew him well figured that he died of a broken heart. They figured that he, he reckoned that if the nations could find no alternative to the horrors of modern warfare to settle differences, then humanity had to be so deeply flawed as to throw grave doubt on any hope for securing justice and peace. Like Pius V, his 16th century predecessor, Pius X was also canonized. We know him as St. Pius X. He was canonized in 1954. And his feast day is August 21st, which is right around the time when he died. Pius V, incidentally, was also familiar with the trials of war. He was the Roman pontiff when the Christian fleet defeated the Turks at the Battle of Lepanto on October 7th, 1571. Benedict XV, who followed Pius X, he was there in Pope from 1914 to 1922, shared and tenaciously pursued his predecessor's concern for peace. As World War II came to an end, Benedict drew up a seven-point peace plan for the warring parties to settle their differences. The plan was based on principle and diplomacy, not power and force. It was rejected out of hand by our Secretary of State, Robert Lansing. I know, I know this guy's from Watertown, New York, and I served up there for nine years, and they have a street named after him, and every time I drove over that street, <laughs> of course, the window was rolled up, otherwise I would have done something. 
But the, uh, the representatives of Great Britain and France followed suit. Now, three decades later, five of the seven points were incorporated in the UN's Declaration of Universal Human Rights. The same principles figured in the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, known as SALT, established both the necessity and the basis for international arbitration. Benedict also formulated the agreement between that, that eventually became the Lateran Pact in 1929, which settled a long-standing dispute between the Vatican and the Italian government. And this formula was also used to establish agreements in diplomatic relations with nations, not only in Europe, but in Latin America, all around the globe. And this resolved what had been a very thorny problem, dating back to the age of reason. This pope, however, Benedict XV, was better known for his emphasis on the missionary activity of the church. In his encyclical Maximum Illud, he stressed the necessity of training indigenous clergy. At the beginning of his pontif pontificate, mind you, there was not a single mission diocese under indigenous bishops, not one. There were only 2,700 native priests, and there were only 9 million people under the propagation of the faith. At the end of his successor's pontificate, there were 40 dioceses under native bishops. There were 200 new vicariates. There were 7,000 native priests, and there were 21 million people under the Society of the Propagation of the Faith. Now, can you imagine? And was the church dead? Oh, it was alive. Although his concern may have been occasioned, I mean, he, he sat there and he knew, hey, look, communism, fascism, you know, and uh, Muslim, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on, militant atheism. Uh, he was aware of that, but he drew his motivation from an awareness of the needs of humanity and a realization that those needs can be met only by accepting Christ and his message of unity and peace. On September 30th, 1919, 1,500 years after the death of St. Jerome, the church's only, I guess, celebrated scriptural scholar, Benedict issued the encyclical Spiritus Paracletus, stressing again the necessity for Catholics to read the Bible. He reiterated the principles laid down by Leo XIII. But for all of his attention to diplomacy, military enterprise, and completing Pius X's works of revision of canon law and so on, Benedict manifested the church's growing commitment to serving humanity where? In his practice of charity. And the real measure of the man can be found in the fact that he literally exhausted the Vatican's financial reserves in helping the poor. They had to borrow money to pay for his burial. That's how much he did for the poor. With the election of Pius XI, who had held office from 1922 to 1939, we begin to see both a consistency with the concerns of his predecessors as well as the development of these concerns in terms of their impact on the church and society at large. Picking out a few of his more significant encyclicals, I would mention Pax Christiana, which addressed the issue of Christian unity. And on Leo XIII talked about the reunification of the Orthodox Slavic churches. And in Quadragesimo Anno, he went back, that's 40 years after Rerum Novarum. That's what it means in the 40th year after uh, Rerum Novarum. He again addressed the issue of social justice. Casti Canubi, talking on Christian marriage. And Ubi Arcano, the lay apostolate. Can you imagine? The Pope talked finally about the laity are to take part in the, fulfilling the mission of the church. As you know, now we're down to somewhere around 1925 on this 
And, uh, and finally, Miserentissimus Redemptor, wherein he spoke on devotion to the Sacred Heart. Leo XIII and uh, Pius XI, and uh, another pope in there, that they, Benedict XV, they all talked about the fact that we had to come to a deeper understanding that God is a God of love, that, 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 that Jesus in the heart of Christ shows us, reveals he is the incarnate word, he is incarnate love. The letters on Christian unity and social justice built on the work of Leo XIII. In treating the topic, Pius XI added these two concepts, subsidiarity and corporate order. And they were very important. It's like uh, subsidiarity means responsibility at the level of, uh, of where the action is occurring. And corporate order has to do with co-responsibility. That when you have, you know, really in the church, we're like the, the body, the mystical body is, everything's tied to, the head's tied to the foot. You know, if you've got a sore foot, the head can't say forget about it. You know, the head's got to know the foot's sore. And that's what he was talking about there, the corporate order. And that comes up again in the concept of collegiality in Vatican II. Again, and more specifically, he cited totalitarian systems as opposed, as I mentioned before, to the dignity of the human person, but adding to the sanctity of family life. He broke new ground in writing on the participation of the laity in the mission of the church, the mission of the hierarchy, and in creating the Feast of Christ the King. That was a feast he saw as the development of the Sacred Heart Devotion. He saw that uh, Sacred Heart Devotion was not just a private act of piety, but a social movement aimed at the same goal that Pius X had declared to restore all things in Christ. And another thing that Pius, uh, that, um, Pius XI did was he noted the conspiracy of silence in the world press in regard to the bloody persecution of the church in Mexico. In our modern fair press, you know, that gives us all the, you know, all this, they never mentioned that. You never saw a thing. And Padre, you know, Father Pro, who's just recently been canonized, he died saying, long live Christ the King. And I mean, you, when you read stories about that Mexican, ruthless. I mean, it was as bad as the reign of terror or worse. And uh, the world press never said a thing about it. And that was, in uh, Pius XI, that was a significant step towards making the voice of the church heard in matters that involve basic human rights, especially freedom of worship. And so we come to Pius XII. He was regarded by Franklin Delano Roosevelt as the most brilliant mind of the 20th century. He wrote at length and in depth on everything of interest and concern to humanity and the modern world. He wrote on human dignity, basic rights of, to freedom and access to private property. He also said it was the right of government <laughs> to protect the individual, not to plunder his assets. And he wrote on international government and international trade, communications, medical ethics, all kinds of things. <clears throat> Specifically, he issued encyclicals on the Bible. And this was a very important one, Divino Aflante Spiritu, by the divine flame of the Holy Spirit. Um, I always mention this, and when I first studied scripture, our scripture professor, Father uh, Joe Gasper, when he would mention Divino Aflante Spiritu, tears would come to his eyes. He would really, I mean, he'd, he'd tear up. Because it was such a breakthrough, you know, for us to come to the richness of the Bible, the Gospels especially, to understand more fully what, what all these things meant, you know, and like how Christ, when he spoke, uh, like when he spoke, for example, of the Beatitudes, he wasn't giving us some kind of ideology. He was painting a self-portrait. That's what Christ was. He said, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
everything he said in the Beatitudes, he was. And that's what he calls us to be. That, that was a very important uh, encyclical, but the one on mystical body of Christ, Mystici Corpus also, and on the liturgy, Mediator Dei, the missionary activity of the church, Fidei Donum, and again, devotion to the Sacred Heart. He mentioned he had two in Summi Pontificatus, his first encyclical. He highlighted the importance of that devotion in our troubled times. And then in Haurietas Aquas, you shall draw water, living water. There he really gave the scriptural foundation and the full meaning of devotion to the heart of Christ. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Embracing the world in prayer. That's at the heart of the World Mission Rosary, developed by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. The rosary's different colored beads for each decade call to mind every part of the globe where the church continues to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Peace will come only when the hearts of the world have changed, Archbishop Sheen said. To do this, we must pray for the world. Naturally, we pray for our own needs and for those we love. As missionaries, we pray also that all come to know and experience the love of Jesus. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio presents. So he spoke volumes on justice and peace issues, human solidarity, and the role of the laity in fulfilling the mission of the church. In fact, in, in, one, uh, you know, in 1946, on the occasion of making Archbishop Cushing of Boston a member of the College of Cardinals, this is what Pius XII said in his allocution. I quote, the faithful, and more precisely the laity, are in the front line of the church's life. Accordingly, they, especially they, must have an ever clearer sense not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church. The community of the faithful on earth under the guidance of the common head, the Pope, and of the bishops in communion with him. We constitute the church. Twelve years later, he was still in... T- oh, and incidentally, you know, this, this 1946 uh, convocation when they had... Uh, when he made Cushing a cardinal, that was the first time in 500 years that non-Italian cardinals outnumbered the Italians. <laughs> 500 years, that was a break. That's a watershed, let's say. Twelve years later, he was still intent on mobilizing the laity to bring Christianity into the world, insisting, he said this, that we don't need any more documents on doctrine. What we need to do, rather, is to implement what we already know. And that brings us, of course, to John the 23rd. He was a peasant stock, but he was gifted with a common, and so he was gifted with that common touch. He was, uh, <laughs> he was very much down to earth. One of our uh, daughters of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart was a niece of his, and she was uh, in, in Rome. And uh, she had stories about what she called uncle. <laughs> but he, he was good. Anyhow, he, he was, he, you know, he was common. 
But he had long, long years in the service of the Vatican Secretary of State as a diplomat. And he had very refined diplomatic skills. One of the first things he did as Pope, you'd never guess. One of the first things he did as Pope was to send a birthday card to Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a handsome man, but everybody loved him, even the communists. Yeah, they really did. He had a way about him that generated optimism, enthusiasm, and trust. And he, too, like Leo XIII, had a good sense of humor. A reporter once asked him, Your Eminent, Your Holiness, uh, how many people work in the Vatican? He paused for a moment and thought and then said, Oh, about half. <laughs> so why did he call the council? Well, we have to keep two things in mind. Number one, the conditions in the world at the time of the council, when it was called, and two, the conditions of the church at that historical moment. In the words of John the 23rd, here's what was going on in the world. Quote, today... The church is witnessing a crisis underway within society. While humanity is on the edge of a new era, tasks of immense gravity and amplitude await the church as in the most tragic periods of its history. It is a question, in fact, of bringing the modern world into contact with the vivifying and perennial en energies of the gospel, a world which exalts itself with its conquests in the technical and scientific fields, but which brings also the consequences of a temporal order, which some have wished to re reorganize, excluding God. This is why modern society is earmarked by a great material progress to which there is not a corresponding advance in the moral field. In more concrete terms, the condition of those times included, first of all, a fear of nuclear annihilation. I don't know if you guys remember that. You remember we had bomb shelters and, and they taught kids how to dive under the desks in school? That was all this Cold War that was going on. And the Cold War, there was no diplomacy except, I mean, it was, you know, we were in a, what you would call a codependent relationship with Russia, or communists. Codependent relationship is like, you don't act out of your own center, you just react to what the other person does. And that's what was going on. There were 40 hot wars also, 40 hot wars. And they were mostly, that was because this was the end of the colonial era. And that meant, uh, you know, all these wars like in Africa, Mugabe, he was one of those guys. When he said the nation has to be born out of the muzzle of a gun. That was one of the hot wars. There was epidemic disease, severe shortage of medical and uh, educational resources, genocide, economic oppression, exploitation, refugee population in the millions, and the bloodiest era in the history of mankind. You know, modest estimates say that, uh, you know, by, well, let's talk about when uh, 1958, going back a century, there, the modest estimate is that 120 million people, 120 to 140 million people died violent deaths, either killed or starved to death or just uh, killed, not dying a natural death. And what, what most people said at that time was the Age of Enlightenment had gone into bankruptcy. They didn't believe all this big progress that was predicted and all, these, all this happiness and that just wasn't there. But the sad thing is we'll see later on that uh, what that changed into was this subjectivism 
and you know you can't know truth and all the stuff that's going on today. Belief in science and technology had, a, uh, however, brought about an increase in prosperity in isolated areas. But at the same time, it brought about the development of those more powerful weapons, an escalation in human conflict. They used to call it pipe bomb diplomacy. You remember that? And codependent behavior I mentioned. All of this in the absence of moral restraints. But what about the conditions in the church? Here again, in the words of John the 23rd. Thus, though the world may appear profoundly changed, the Christian community is also in great part transformed and renewed. It has therefore strengthened itself socially in unity. It has been reinvigorated intellectually. It has been interiorly purified and is thus ready for trial. In the face of this twofold spectacle, I'm still quoting here, a world which reveals a grave state of spiritual poverty in the Church of Christ, which is still so vibrant with vitality, we, from the time we ascended to the Supreme Pontificate, despite our unworthiness, and by means of an impulse of divine providence, have felt immediately the urgency of the duty to call our sons together, to give the church the possibility to contribute more efficaciously to the solutions of the problems of the modern age. In the opening message to the world in Vatican II, this purpose is expressed more clearly. Again, I quote, Coming together in unity from every nation under the sun, we carry in our hearts the hardships, the bodily and mental distress, the sorrows, longings, and hopes of all people entrusted to us. We urgently turn our thoughts to all the anxieties by which modern man is afflicted. Hence, let our concerns swiftly focus, first of all, on those who are especially lowly, poor, and weak. Like Christ, we would have pity on the multitude, weighed down with hunger, misery, and lack of knowledge. We want to fix a steady gaze on those who still lack the opportune help to achieve a way of life worthy of human beings. As we undertake our work, therefore, we would emphasize whatever concerns the dignity of man, whatever contributes to a genuine community of peoples. Quote, Christ's love impels us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For, quote again, he who sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? First letter of John, chapter 3, verse 17. So here we see what the Pope was talking about to turn our attention to the world in crisis, to people in need. John XXIII died on June 3, 1963, before the second session of the Council convened. Now, we'll talk about this a bit later, but not a few of the more conservative members of the hierarchy in Rome had hoped that the new Pope, whoever that might be, would cancel the Council because they thought it was getting out of hand. Even with this change in leadership, the purpose of the council remained the same as seen as can be seen in Paul VI's closing remarks when the council concluded. Here's what he said. Quote, Another point we must stress is this. All of this rich teaching is channeled in one direction, the service of mankind. Of every condition and every weakness and need, the church has, so to say, 
declared herself the servant of humanity. There you have the purpose of Vatican II. The church declared herself the servant of humanity. As Paul VI later said in, in, uh, in his encyclical Evangelii Nunciandi, the definitive purpose for Vatican II, the definitive purpose was to equip the church of the 20th century to proclaim the good news to the people of the 20th century. Why did we call Vatican II? There you have it. Now, from all the foregoing, at least in the mind of John XXIII, the Second Vatican Council was not called because the church was in crisis. It was called because the world was in crisis. And it still is, only more so, you know. But the question remains, if the church really was, in the words of John XXIII, quote, still vibrant with vitality, why did we need a worldwide council? The only conclusion we can safely draw is that John, Pope John felt that the church wasn't up to meeting the challenge at hand in the modern world. The last post that Cardinal Roncalli had held in the Vatican diplomatic corps, where was it? In France. And all the wonderful writings of the popes over the previous hundred years apparently had not much effect in France. They neither reached the mind nor touched the hearts of the millions of nominal Catholics in that country. So John, John XXIII knew that the church already had the truths, the values, the principles, and beliefs that the world needed to achieve justice, peace, and unity. And he also knew, as Pope Pius XII had said, that there was no need and, and indeed no way to formulate new doctrine without becoming part of the problem. The church had the answers. The, teachings were on the, the church's teachings were on the mark, but they were having little or no effect in society at large. The why for Vatican II is summed up in this context very well in this one short sentence by Father Alfred Delp, a Jesuit priest who was murdered in, murdered in a Nazi prison just prior to the end of World War II. As part of his meditations in the previous Advent, the time of year we're in, he wrote these words, quote, in spite of all right reason and orthodox belief, the churches are coming to a dead end. In spite of all right reason and orthodox belief, the churches are coming to a dead end. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.